Welcome to the podcast series from the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.forumhsph.org. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. We're here today to talk about the next pandemic. Are we ready? My name is Peter Thompson. I'm the environment editor at the Public Radio International Daily News Program, The World. The event is a collaboration with the Forum, PRI's The World, and WGBH in Boston. The Forum's a live webcasting series about health policy produced by the Harvard School of Public Health, which, by the way, is celebrating its centennial this year. School of Public Health and the World are also live tweeting from today's forum. You can follow the Twitter feed at the hashtag NextPandemic. We'll be taking questions from our audience here in the studio at a couple of points in the program. You can also email questions to our panelists at theforum at hsph.harvard.edu. So why are we here? Well, we had a couple of scares earlier this year with what looked like possible outbreaks of bird flu in China, lyrically dubbed H7N9, and uh, a new coronavirus that's causes, that causes what's known as Middle East Respiratory System, or MERS, which was centered, not surprisingly, in and around the Middle East. Those both died down fairly quickly, but recently there have been some new cases of each of them, which have brought new concerns about the world's readiness to confront pot potential pandemics. Our panelists today will examine some of the risks associated with these particular viruses, various technologies and strategies to track and combat them at the global, national, and local levels. They'll also remind us of some of the lessons learned from past episodes, such as the outbreak of SARS, or severe acute respiratory syndrome that killed nearly 1,000 people, mostly in southern China and Hong Kong in 2002 and 2003, and the H1N1 swine flu outbreak that killed roughly 17,000 people around the world in 2009. So today's panelists are, starting from my immediate right, Mark Lipsitch. He's the director of the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics here at Harvard. Klaus Storr, Global Head of Influenza, Influenza Franchises, Global Head of Influenza Franchises at Novartis, formerly with the World Health Organization. Robert Hebner, who directs the Influenza Division at the Federal Biomedical Advancement Research and Development Authority, which we all know and love as BARDA, that's the division of HHS. And Anita Barry, who's an infectious disease physician and has been the director of the, the, the Infectious Disease Bureau here in Boston for almost 30 years. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for coming. Um, so we'll go down the table and turn first to Mark Lipschitz for a bit of an overview. He's going to tell us what the pandemic threats are currently keeping public health officials up at night. Mark. Thank you. Pandemics arise when two things happen simultaneously to, with the same pathogen. They arise when a pathogen is first novel to our immune systems and therefore there are large numbers of people who are susceptible to, to becoming infected with it. And secondly, when that same virus uh, is transmissible readily from one person to another. And that combination of transmissibility from human to human and susceptibility of the global population sets us up for a situation similar to what we had in 1918, what we had in 2009, uh, and have had several other times since in the case of influenza. <clears throat> Where do those come from? They pr primarily come from those and other pandemic viruses primarily come from animals. And the problem for epidemiologists and people who do surveillance is that there are 
scores of different influenza strains and many other viruses circulating in animals at any given time, most of which don't readily transmit between humans. And the, the problem for all of us in public health is to make an educated guess about which of those represent the greatest threat uh, and which uh, then we should take particular effort, make particular efforts to uh, watch and combat should they start to spread. Um, if I can have the first slide, um, as you just heard, there are uh, a couple of threats that are particularly of concern on the world stage right now. The first is a coronavirus, MERS, uh, and there are some numbers up there which you should take with a grain of salt, 153 confirmed cases and 64 deaths. Every number with pandemic threats is, should be suspect and is probably too small. And one of the things that we uh, as epidemiologists try to do is to <coughs> take, go from the reported cases and the reported deaths, like the 17,000 uh, reported deaths from the last pandemic, and try to figure out how many actually occurred, because most people who are, are sick are never tested and therefore can't be included in those numbers. Um, MERS, as I mentioned, is a coronavirus related to SARS. Uh, and uh, although that is certainly of great concern to public health authorities globally, uh, we are going to focus this discussion today mostly on influenza. Um, and in particular, if I could have the next slide on uh, influenza H7N9, which has had, caused a comparable number of cases and a comparable number of deaths. But once again, those are probably underestimates. And people are trying very hard to figure out uh, in what way they are underestimates. Uh, and, and in particular, the number of cases is probably an underestimate because we always see the most severe cases and therefore these pandemic threats look worse than they are, which doesn't mean they're not bad, but it does mean that we often see the tip of the iceberg, which are the most sick individuals. So, uh, so that's where, where these threats come from. Uh, and uh, as I say, our goal in doing surveillance of wild bird populations, domestic bird populations, and then a wider array of species, including pigs, bats, camels, and others, is to try to see where these are coming from and, and identify them before they become threats. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Now to Klaus Storr. <laughs> That's correct pronunciation, forgive me. Klaus, you've been looking at some of these threats and um, challenges from the perspective of a vaccine maker, but also someone who's worked on the issues from the global perspective at the WHO. Yeah, uh, I mean, Mark described how these pandemics uh, occur. Ideally, you would like to prevent them, detect them quickly and then prevent them. How would you prevent them? Ideally with vaccines. But having a vaccine for something which is not yet occurred is very difficult. What is the current situation if a pandemic would occur today? Uh, we are completely dependent upon a seasonal influenza vaccine production capacity. So there's nobody who can produce just a pandemic vaccine. If a pandemic would occur, we would always still need a seasonal influenza vaccine production site. It is also the case that we are still dependent upon an egg-derived influenza vaccine. There are very few modern vaccines. There are emerging, there are more coming, but we are completely dependent still upon egg-derived influenza vaccine. It is also still the case that there is no excess capacity available. Developing countries have very little capacity uh, and the immunization capacity there to bring the vaccine to people which are in greatest, who are in greatest need is also suboptimal. Realistically, uh, how long did it take during the H1N1 pandemic for the virus to spread? It was weeks, possibly days down to, south, uh, down to the southern hemisphere to New Zealand. But it will still take at least four to six weeks to develop out of the wild virus 
the seed virus, which can be used for vaccine production, and then another two to three months before the first vaccine doses are going to be available. By that point of time, the virus has certainly spread globally, uh, but the vaccine to be available for everyone, um, it will certainly take a lot of time, at least a year before enough vaccine will be available. At the same time, we have an unprecedented number of influenza vaccines available. There is no other disease which has so many different uh, 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 no, no other disease with so many different vaccines available and there's a host of new developments but at the same time there is no breakthrough we are still uh, lacking a vaccine which has a, a very high efficacy in the elderly and the children we need a vaccine which is um, can be easily administered and a vaccine where, which can be ramped up very quickly when a pandemic occurs what is the situation in the next five years? My prediction is that we will still be dependent upon a seasonal capacity. We will still be dependent upon egg-derived vaccines. There will be an incremental increase in global vaccine production capacity. My prediction is also that we will uh, see uh, no more production capacity in developing countries, unless there is a really a profound change, which I cannot see. We will still be dependent upon an adjuvant. An adjuvant will be needed for antigen sparing, for increasing the cross-reactivity of these vaccines, but also their persistence. And a very interesting development, um, currently I would guess about 50% of the global antigen production capacity is already contracted for a pandemic. So if a pandemic would occur, most capacity has already been signed off by someone uh, and is already blocked. Uh, and the good news is possibly in the next five years there will be a new technology available which can reduce the time from the emergence of the virus, the detection of the virus, to the beginning of vaccine production. That can be reduced possibly from four to six weeks down to one week. So that is, that is very good news. And what is happening next 10 years? I would believe in the next 10 years there will be one breakthrough technology available which can be easily ramped up with relatively little investment for the upstream so that a lot of doses can be produced. And there may be one or two additional production technologies available which give an affordable idle capacity. So you can keep them idle. Uh, uh, you don't have to produce seasonal vaccine. You can ramp up them, ramp them up quickly. So that would be my forecast for the next five to 10 years uh, for, the, for our pandemic preparedness status as far as vaccines are concerned. Okay, thanks, Klaus. So working our way now down to Robert Hebner. Robert's going to tell us a bit about how the federal government is set up to respond to the threat of a virus pandemic. Uh, but first, please tell us a little bit about the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Um, it sounds from our brief conversation earlier that it's a little like, like DARPA for infectious diseases. Uh, that description has been used by others as they describe what BARDA does. And what BARDA does is it makes medic new medical countermeasures available to the public that uh, sh show promise today, but need to advance from early research clinical development stages all the way to commercialization of those medical countermeasures. So when there is a public health emergency, like a influenza pandemic, but other types of public health emergencies as well, we have those medical countermeasures available. In the influenza division, I'm charged with leading that, those efforts to help prepare the nation for pandemic influenza. And so that involves vaccines, but also new antiviral drugs and new other medical countermeasures such as new types of ventilators, new types of respiratory protection devices, 
items that could be useful during influenza pandemics. So, um, you know, part of my job is to make some of the predictions that uh, Klaus just made come true, that we have vaccines that are not based on just growing viruses and eggs. And we now have, for instance, last year we had licensed, it was by Novartis where Klaus works, the first cell-based vaccine. So we've, we're, we've started to move out of eggs. Earlier this year, we had the license of the first recombinant vaccine. Now, why is that important? First of all, recombinant vaccines can be made much more rapidly. We believe the first uh, recombinant vaccines in response to a pandemic could come out after about 12 weeks, be released and be available for to start vaccinating the public. But the other thing that's important, and this was one of the lessons we learned in 2009, is it's not dependent on virus replication in order to make your vaccine. The virus we were dealing with in 2009, it took the companies and the federal government a bit of time to figure out how to grow enough of the virus in order to make the vaccines. So that shift in technology, I think, is very important. How BARDA does the, fosters that and does that is we have, through contracts and grants, we create public-private partnerships so that we work with companies to bring technology from the bench to uh, commercialization so it's publicly available. Um, how the federal government responds to pandemics is we do, I think it's important to understand we do a threat assessment. When there's surveillance, when something comes up on, uh, during surveillance, we do a threat assessment. How, you know, is this something that we should respond to? And then what's the appropriate level of response? Uh, this is coordinated by an interagency group, uh, the Public Health uh, Emergency Medical Countermeasure Enterprise, or the FEMC, we, is the acronym that we use, and that's coordinated by the Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, or the ASPR. And um, just as uh, as far as supplies uh, of vaccine go, we we are charged with not only trying to make sure that we have as much of the supply of vaccines here domestically, we're also charged with uh, a part of our charges to try and help with the global situation as well. And we work very closely with the WHO to make certain that uh, vaccines are available in developing countries. And we work through the, the GAP program that WHO has that uh, they are working on uh, developing production capacity in under-resourced countries throughout the world so that there are vaccines available not only in the developed countries, but in under-resourced countries as well. Okay, thanks very much. And finally, we, of course, all live here in Boston, in and around Boston. So Anita Barry is here to talk about how city officials are responding to these kinds of threats. Anita. Thank you. Well, we're kind of where the rubber meets the road. And I think we had a little glimpse of what happens in a pandemic when we experienced 2009 H1N1. I want to talk about three main areas. The first is communication. Early in a pandemic, there's incomplete information on which public health officials have to base advice and guidelines. And that makes it kind of difficult because you have to put out an accurate message. But once those guidelines come out, you have to adapt them to work on a local level. 
For instance, in 2009, recommendations were that healthcare providers providing care for influenza cases should wear a fit-tested N95 respirator. Well, that was fine in the hospitals, but it wasn't fine in the schools. We would routinely get calls from school nurses who had 40 sick kids standing outside their door and no masks at all, much less a fit-tested N95. Capacity. We certainly learned in 2009 we have got to have surge capacity. Boston has many, many medical resources. We have 10 acute care hospitals. We have 25 community health centers. But even in Boston, in 2009, we had challenges. Many of the hospitals had to open excess emergency department space because they couldn't deal with the number of people coming in for emergency care. Not only that, at the City Health Department, we tried to use vacancies in intensive care unit beds to assess the severity of what was going on in Boston, and it didn't work. And it didn't work because the ICU beds throughout the city were completely filled during the whole episode. You know, there's just little wiggle room in today's healthcare system. Some of you may recall that last January, the mayor of the city of Boston declared a public health emergency related to influenza. Why was that? Well, it wasn't because we had so, so many cases. It was because our healthcare partners were calling us saying, we've been working at surge level for weeks now. We cannot keep up this pace. You have to do something to get us relief. And the best thing we could offer was try to increase vaccination among the population. And finally, I want to say a word about community mitigation measures, also called non-pharmaceutical interventions. This refers to things like school closures. Well, we found out a little bit about this, this uh, type of control of a disease in 2009. First of all, many people do not get paid sick days. So if you are asking someone to stay home because they're sick or their child is sick, you have to realize for some people this means making the choice between being able to buy food or pay the rent. So some parents simply couldn't stay home. When it was high school students who had a school closure, I can promise you they weren't home. They were at the mall. We heard about it. If it was younger children, Many parents ended up leaving them at home by themselves, and that raised a lot of safety concerns. Or they found another group setting for their child. So we took a child from a school closed because it had so much influenza activity, and they're now dropped into another group who may not have had any influenza activity before. Similarly, masks. First of all, the data to support mask use could use a little improvement. We need a lot more data. But the bigger issue to me is, will people wear them? Will they wear them correctly? We're a very diverse city. Does the wearing of masks mean the same thing in different cultures? I think we still have a lot that we don't know in how to deal with pandemics when the rubber meets the road. Great.
Thanks, Nita. Everyone's kept their comments so brief that we actually have a little extra time for questions in the first half of the program. So I'm going to throw it to the audience for now. Um, we'll take a few questions from the audience. We also have some questions coming in online. We want to be sure to get at least a couple of those. But we've got about nine minutes for questions. So um, yes, right here. Hi, my name is Miriam Ashkenazi. I'm actually the Deputy Director of Global Disaster Response at Mass General Hospital. And Anita's coming on Tuesday. We are actually having a tabletop exercise for MERS. Mm -hmm. Because one of our big concerns is we have obviously a global working staff. And we've noticed that there's a very high rate of transmission to healthcare workers with MERS. And our concern is what happens if somebody's working, let's just say in Doha, in a hospital, and they have a suspected exposure. And they come to us and say, get me out. So we, we're hoping to get a little insight on what some of the take-home points should be for us at that tabletop. I'd love to hear what you, if you have anything to offer and what you have to offer. Well, the first thing that I would offer is it's wonderful that you're planning ahead and trying to respond um, by doing a tabletop exercise. There is a lot of experience in the city dealing with this type of issue. We have certainly had a number of suspect MERS cases in Boston that we've had to deal with already. Mm -hmm. So I think the tabletops and planning are key, including planning for your staff who is overseas and in high-risk areas. You know, what are you going to do? How are you going to get them back? Where will they go? How will they get from the airport to whatever type of healthcare facility they need to get to? Well, if I can add to that, uh, during the SARS period of time, so in 2003, when we did not know what is the transmission rate, how long are people shedding the virus, um, what is the possibility for transmission over a ventilated person, what are the, the mean, uh, means to inactivate the virus, cleaning and disinfection, all these things are still open. So people have actually overshot. So they are trying pre pretty much to, to use maximum uh, preventive measures. Fortunately, then some data became available, but the reality was that those people who were overseas um, had a difficult <coughs> time to go back home. There is no doubt about this because the local authorities will close, certainly the hospital. They also don't want to make, they don't want to put anyone in, anybody in, in a plane where you have ventilation going on uh, and you don't want to infect others. But the, the big learning here is certainly that the more it's being tested, the more, the more you, are, you are going through intellectual exercise, if you wish, the more you can predict what might be happening and, and the better you're prepared. So I can only support these tabletop exercise, but at, at all levels, at national levels, regional, provincial level, hospital levels, uh, it should not be all, uh, underestimated. The, the, in the UK, they have done in 2005 top exercise where all the ministers were involved and where all the states that eventually were involved and that has revealed so much and there were books actually written about it so I can only suggest that this is that this is continued. Yeah. Anyone else want to weigh in on that or can we go? Well, just one other thing I, I could su suggest is I heard recently about a um, actually it was an annual flu immunization clinic that was run in a county in Pennsylvania, and they ran it as a pandemic exercise. So they actually, people came in and got their flu vaccines, but they manned the clinic and staffed it as if people were coming in to get their pandemic vaccine, Work, working through the process to identify kinks. So hopefully, you know, in the future, when, if, the, if and when they need to activate those plans, they know how to act on them appropriately and have identified some of the, um, foibles that could arise in a plan. I guess one last 
point is that <clears throat> certainly in SARS, hospital-based infection control was crucial to, to stamping it out in, in almost every place that it occurred, uh, and, and the lack of it initially was, was what allowed the cases to spread. The l same thing appears to be true even more so with MERS at, in its current form. In its current form, with really good infection control, it doesn't spread widely. It, it can spread, but it doesn't spread widely, which is why the exported cases haven't led to massive outbreaks. Obviously, there's the need to watch the changes in the virus that may occur as it travels from human to human. One more question from the audience, and then maybe one from online. Over here. My name is Rafael. I'm a PhD student uh, and using recombinant influenza viruses. And uh, I have a question about Reno Rapuoli and, and Sylvie. They showed some uh, results in SAM adjuvant uh, with RNA-based vaccines and a collaboration with Craig Venter that made an online sequence. <coughs> like in eight hours, they could make a virus uh, from it. And this is very important. But my question is, it's the, the clinical trials from the government. They, they, they can keep this velocity, this, this speed of making a vaccine to reach the population, or, or they're the 10 years to get uh, the, first, the first result in one phase one clinical trial. Is, is it good enough, the timing today? Or they could do something better in pandemic situations? I can try a quick shot at it. Right? Many, yeah. many statements. Question just briefly on um, one area where we had a significant progress. And the key people who are actually driving this are in the room. One colleague is sitting over here, Phil Dormitzer, uh, and, and our colleagues from Barda. They have been investing into a technology by which you can um, upload the sequences of an influenza virus, transmit it electronically, use the sequence information. Uh, and create the genetic information, create a virus, change the virus that it grows better, uh, has a higher yield, uh, and all that can, can happen within less than four to seven days. And you can have in less than a week a vaccine virus and start production. In the old days, two or three years ago, that, that all took much longer, and you were dependent upon the country to receive the virus. So there are significant things which are uh, advancing new technology, and you may gain four, up to four weeks before vaccine production can start. Of course, it will then still take two months before the vaccine is going to come out, and it will depend upon the good collaboration between the governments, the regulatory agencies, and the pharmaceutical industry to find uh, uh, practical ways to advance clinical uh, development, to find a good vaccine that works for the virus which is circulating and which has the safety and the efficacy that is required to prevent more cases in the population. But that will take time, will also take resources. Um, and, and currently, um, there is a limit of two to three months minimum between the emergence of the virus and until the first vaccine doses will be available. Uh, and if I could weigh in on this, I think one of the things the government is trying to do is to develop standardized protocols that would be used in, in an emergency to test new vaccines to make sure, first of all, that they are safe and effective. The other thing we've done over uh, the past decade is perform a number of clinical trials with novel influenza strains so that we understand how these strains will perform if we need to make a vaccine to them in uh, 
in the future to respond to a, a pandemic or public health emergency. For instance, this spring, when this past spring, when we saw H7N9 emerge, we looked at the information that was available on H7 vaccines, and there were probably about a half a dozen or so clinical trials that had been done. Uh, most of those were unsuccessful. So I think it was pretty clear to most of us in the government that the use of adjuvants were going to be needed in order to um, have an effective H7 vaccine. Uh, we're the first information on clinical trials are starting to come out and it suggests that that is indeed the case, that we will need to use adjuvants. But one of the other things that we've done at BARDA is we've let a number of contracts with companies to develop novel adjuvants that are appropriate for the use with pandemic vaccines so that we have those adjuvants available and we have the safety information available on the use of those adjuvants so we can do the right cost-benefit analysis to make that and make those vaccines available if they are needed need to be adjuvanted. Let's go to one quick question from online. Uh, We'll get it from Lisa Meyerowitz, who's the executive director of the forum. Thanks, Peter. Yeah, we have a lot of questions online right now, and they're coming in from all over the world, and I'm going to try to pick ones that represent groups of questions. Um, this is from Sven Jungmin, University of Oxford in the UK. Skilled communication with the public is crucial to mitigate the impact of an outbreak while preventing the uprise of panic. However, if in the end our control strategies were successful enough to make the outbreak look mild, the public might in retrospect perceive the warnings as exaggerated and based on vested commercial interests. In that sense, success could create public distrust and harm compliance in future outbreaks. Hence, my question is, how do we strike the right balance when it comes to mass communication? That's a challenge. Um, <laughs> it's certainly a challenge. I think one thing I've learned in working uh, with the public and trying to create messages is you have to have the right messenger. If you're trying to communicate with people, you have to have someone they trust getting that message. It might be a community leader who then spreads it in that neighborhood. It may be a, particularly, uh, a particular newspaper that's published in a different language. But if you don't have a credible spokesperson, don't waste your time. They're not going to listen to you. you. You need to give people a sense of control, that they can do things that this isn't just something that's going to happen to them. Um, and you have to provide advice that people can follow to do that, to believe that they are protecting themselves and their loved ones. Um, it's, it's a tricky balance. And once we, as a, as a local health department, lose the public's trust, that's very hard to get back. So we have to be really careful about the message, message we send. Mark, you want to weigh in? Sure. Um, I, I think we wrote an article in the New England Journal in May after the April start of the 2009 pandemic called Managing and Reducing Uncertainty in a Flu Pandemic. And the point of that article was that every, almost every important decision about control would have to be made before we knew how bad the disease was and how transmissible it was. And I think the public can can understand that sometimes you have to prepare for something that might be worse than it turns out to be and that that's what it 
a responsible person does. You don't plan for the best case. So I think I think in admitting the uncertainty and and uh, communicating that to the public while saying we are we are working on the assumption that it may be bad and these are why we, th this is why we're taking the measures we are but but a, a calibrated response the other thing that really struck me during the 2009 pandemic um, in in looking at the government response <coughs> was the importance of communication among members of the public health team in the federal government and also at the state and local level what was remarkable was how many different mental scenarios people had in their mind uh, about how the pandemic was going to play out educated highly uh, important people uh, at high levels in government. And because there was no publicly stated set of three or four possible scenarios that were being planned for, I think uh, planning got, uh, got less efficient and less coordinated. Um, and, and having those being publicly available means, of course, all this also that the public can see, well, we're planning for these possibilities because we can't be sure which is going to happen. Um, I wonder if there might not also be a lot of value in communicating after the fact when things have passed over what happened, what didn't happen, and perhaps why. And you can't always say exactly why, but you know, perhaps this wasn't as bad as we thought it was going to be because we were prepared for it. And that's really important for people <coughs> to remember. Um, so we're going to move on to the second half now. Um, this is going to be um, a little bit more of a conversation, I think, than just each person presenting. Um, our panelists are going to give us a sense of what works and what doesn't in terms of solutions or at least responses to these kinds of threats. Um, so we'll start again with Mark and work down. But feel free to jump in from time to time with the understanding that we want to give everybody a chance to talk. And we've got about 20 minutes. Thank you. Um, if I could have the first slide, uh, or the third slide. Responding to a pandemic is a race. Essentially, there is an epidemic curve, which is the virus, in this case, influenza virus, spreading. Uh, and there are our responses, um, which on this slide we show uh, the delivery of vaccines. And you can see that in the United States, the first vaccines were delivered around the peak of the epi epidemic. Add another week to that for those vaccines to get in people's arms and another two or three weeks for people to become immune. And you see that really immunity in the population did not start to accumulate until the epidemic had passed. And some of the things you've heard about with improved technology uh, <clears throat> and uh, in vaccine manufacturing are designed to move that blue curve to the left to, to speed up how fast we can get it. They can't, they can't make it instantaneous because clinical trials are necessary and those clinical trials take some months, as a couple of months as people get immunized and then, uh, and then their response is measured. Um, so it, it can't be instant, but, it can, but the early stages can be slowed. The other thing, if I can have my next slide, is that, is that uh, if you compare what might have happened if we hadn't intervened in any way, with uh, the effects of intervention, which I hope you can see in the picture on the, on the uh, lower curve. The goal of all of the non-pharmaceutical interventions that, that Anita mentioned, and also of antiviral treatment, is to push that curve to the right and to bring it down so that the peak is not so high. Um, and the, the bringing the peak down is important because as you just heard, peak demand for respirators and ventilators and all sorts of 
countermeasures can be high uh, and can be unsustainable, but if we can move that demand over a longer time, that's, that's better. And uh, the other reason to do these countermeasures, of course, is to have fewer people get infected and, <clears throat> and to have it happen more slowly so that that uh, vaccine curve can come up uh, in a timely fashion relative to the epidemic. I'm a little more optimistic uh, than Anita about the effectiveness of those non-pharmaceutical interventions, uh, partly because in the most severe pandemics, like the one in 1918, people have better incentives to comply with them than in a perceived uh, and actually relatively mild pandemic uh, where, they, where they don't see as many benefits from complying. Um, and in particular, school closure, I think, is becoming, uh, the data on school, on natural school closure and opening is becoming more compelling that that really is an important part of flu transmission. They're not panaceas. They may not get us there. They didn't get us there in 2009, although we didn't do most of those interventions to their fullest. Um, but that's the goal. And I want to respond briefly? Or? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that from my um, position and how these things play out, if those interventions are not acceptable to the community, they're just not going to happen. They're just not going to happen. And we don't have enough police force to make it happen every, everywhere. So I think we need to figure out where people's hearts and minds are about these things and work with them so that they will comply with some of these recommendations. The criteria we used for school closures in Boston during 2009 was either there were so many staff sick that it wasn't safe for children to be in that school, or there were so many children sick that they were going to have to teach everything again. And that was our criteria for, for closures. And if I could bring up two things that are going to, uh, would affect the curves you just showed. One is the federal government has contracts in place and we have stockpiles of certain vaccines. And so if we get lucky and it's hard to believe I would say that an H5 outbreak would be a lucky happenstance. <laughs> but if we, uh, if we had an outbreak of H H5, we actually have stockpiles that we can use, and those would be the early doses available. They would be the earliest doses available, and we could start to really vaccinate that, the population way before that, that curve comes up. On the flip side of things, one, the other side of it is we are very dependent on a single type of antiviral drug, the neuraminidase inhibitor drugs. And we have seen instances in the past few years, and there was an, a seasonal H1N1 that circulated that oseltamivir, the most common drug, or also known as Tamiflu, did not work. And, and the virus was naturally resistant to it. If we were ha to have an outbreak of a novel virus which had some natural antiviral resistance, it would be very challenging to um, bring down those curves, at least with the antiviral therapies, and we'd lose that part of our response. I just want to follow up on that and say, not only do we only have this small class, the neuraminidase inhibitors, but they're oral or inhaled. We have very little in terms of intravenous or, or parenteral types of uh, medications against influenza. And again, when the rubber meets the road in 2009, we're getting calls from the public. 
their, their health care provider wrote them a prescription for Tamiflu, but they've tried 10 pharmacies and they're all out of it. Where's the Tamiflu? So we learned we needed to track who actually had the stuff. Right. And the federal government has done a number of things. One is advanced development contracts for novel antivirals. Uh, in 2009, we had an emergency use authorization for a drug under development mm -hmm. that was an IV mm -hmm. antiviral paramavir. Mm -hmm. So that was an IV neuraminidase inhibitor to address the need that, that uh, you discussed. And then the third thing was uh, stockpiles of the antiviral drugs that are held by the strategic national stockpile were released to help mm -hmm. alleviate mm -hmm. any shortages. So states were able to get supplies of antiviral drugs. The question of shortages might be a great time to turn back to Klaus Storr, um, who's with a drug company that manufactures uh, uh, vaccines. Um, what are you doing to try to accelerate that and, and alleviate those? And what is the industry doing? And what are the, some, of, some of the other lessons that you have learned yeah. about how to, how to respond from past episodes. Yeah. One, one big learning was certainly that goes beyond vaccines is that if there is a significant emergency, people will pick, pick up the vaccine. If, if people consider that the outbreak is not so severe, then we have the luxury of trying to think how can we increase acceptance of the vaccine. So my uh, expectation would be that during the severe pandemic, we would not have to struggle to get you know, people to take the vaccine. It would be much more important that we can increase the production capacity faster. That Mark's curve you have seen is going to be coming steeper much earlier. So that it's a question of supply, in my view, and not a question of demand at that point of time. So how can we increase supply? Um, ideally, as we are dependent upon seasonal influenza vaccine capacity, we would need to increase this, this seasonal vaccine uptake. But currently, there are 150 countries where influenza seasonal vaccine is used. And of these 150 countries, um, one country takes 25% of that total global seasonal vaccine uptake, which is the US. Another 135 countries take another 25%. And then you have 11 countries, or 15, 11, 15 countries about, which take the other 50%. So it's pretty much 12 countries which take three quarters of the global seasonal vaccine every year. Uh, and during a pandemic, um, the others also all want to have pandemic vaccine. So one solution would be to take seasonal vaccine into national immunization programs. But that is a question of costs and benefits. Uh, the seasonal vaccine has to be given annually. Uh, it's particularly important for the elderly and the children. And the Thai, I'll give you an example, the Thai um, authorities tried to do this. They uh, calculated how much it would cost to give a seasonal influenza vaccine to their elderly. Uh, they would produce it locally and they, they estimated that the cost to do that would be twice the cost they would have to, they are spending or the, the, the fund they are spending every year to immunize their children against diphtheria, tetanus, pertussis, and hepatitis B and OPV. So these are the comparison in terms of cost benefits governments have to make. That's why my prediction would be that seasonal influenza vaccine production increase in developing countries will be very slow, it will all depend upon economic growth. So we have to think about something different than bringing only 
seasonal vaccines into developing countries. We have to find a production technology which can be ramped up very quickly, which can be kept over a longer period of time, uh, and where the influenza vaccine can also produce at a lower cost. And that is where many uh, companies are investing, but it's a pull and push. I mean, if there is an opportunity, there will be investment. Currently, there are not that many governments globally, uh, governments globally which are pulling. One is the <coughs> U.S. government, which is really investing in the public-private partnership. There are not that many others. That's why my prediction that there may not be a significant fundamental solution to the inequitable access to influenza pandemic, pandemic vaccines in the, in, in the foreseeable future. Anyone want to jump in real quickly there? Could we just go uh, on to... One, one thing I can say that what has the U.S. done to encourage increased supply of vaccines. Uh, we actually led a very large contract with uh, Klaus's company, Novartis, and they have built a cell-based facility here in the United States. So new technology, added capacity to the U.S. We've also done retrofit contracts with some of the existing manufacturers of egg-based vaccines as well. Between those contracts, that probably is would, would meet about half of the U.S.'s need for vaccine in a severe pandemic. Uh, we've also, in, in a third program, established centers for innovation and advanced development of manufacturing. And these uh, requirement of those centers is to provide another 25% of the US need for uh, pandemic vaccines, but more as a surge capacity than anything else. These are not seasonal manufacturers per se, it's surge capacity to be called on in a public health emergency. So we've done a number of things here within the US to try and grow that domestic supply. And then we've also worked with WHO for the uh, Global Action Plan to see what can be done in those developing countries to uh, where uh, they're under-resourced for flu vaccines to encourage domestic uh, industry for <coughs> flu vaccination. I'd just like yeah. to comment that equitable distribution, of course, on a, on a worldwide level is very important. But again, from a very local level, that same issue comes up when something is in scarce supply. In 2009, who was going to get the vaccine first? Who wasn't going to get the vaccine first? And in response to that, there have been a number of public meetings trying to get the public to give some input on how are we going to prioritize when these types of situations come up, whether it's medication, whether it's vaccine, whether it's ventilators, but to try to get input from the public on what would be fair and have a transparent process. Anything else you want to add, Anita, about lessons learned and, and moving forward based on past experience? With shortages of vaccine? Shortages of vaccine, other previous? Sure, sure. Well, well one thing, uh, and it relates to both vaccine and messaging, is there may be changing guidelines on who should get vaccinated when the supply is short. And there's more coming, but who gets it first? And that means you have to change your public message. So in the beginning, when there are very limited supplies, we only want to vaccinate people in a certain age range. Then a little more vaccine becomes available. Well, now we can vaccinate that first group plus the second group. And for the public, it can be hard to take in that changing message on recommendations. 
And, and I think that um, we have to find more effective ways to do that. Yeah. If I can add one thing here in the learning. Uh, now, what we have seen is that the last pandemic was uh, not so severe. It was severe enough, but it was not so severe. And people are speculating that one of the reasons was that uh, this H1 virus was already circulating before, so many people had already antibodies, they were cross-reactivity. Now, on that account, people are now thinking more about possibly what can we do now to pre prevent, for the, to prevent the, uh, or at least reduce the impact of the next pandemic. So would pre-pandemic immunization be, be an option? Um, so with other words, can we immunize people now against possibly H2, which is, could be another uh, severe cause, uh, a cause of a severe pandemic. Uh, interestingly, as an example, in Asian countries, people have stockpiled H5 vaccine. Now there are some countries are now using this vaccine. There's one in Taiwan. The Taiwanese have an H5 vaccine. They have travel clinics, 12 travel clinics in their country, and they're immunized. People who are traveling from Taiwan to China. Uh, they have used more than 35,000 doses. They have now a, a program to, to look at the efficacy, if you wish, of these immunizations. So pre-pandemic immunization could be a way to uh, reduce the susceptibility of the population, reduce the demand for the vaccine, to have possibly only one dose maybe needed during a pandemic, where so you have people already with coming in with some Im uh, immunity. But do we, as a as scientific, as a global public health community, do we understand what are the economical, the medical, the ethical, the social dimension of pre-pandemic immunization? Where are the think tanks which have been thinking this through? Have we challenged ourselves with all the, the intricacy of such an immunization? Do we have the answers? Do we want to discard it? What do we need to do to invest here? And I think it's a good time now to think about this. And I do not see anywhere in the world yet the leadership that this very complex subject is being tackled um, now so that we can take advantage of it. Okay, we're going to move back into our final Q&A. We've got about eight minutes. Um, I'm going to exercise moderator's prerogative and just throw one question out to begin with, just to broaden it out a little bit for a minute. You've all talked a lot about how to respond to outbreaks, what to do, what not to do. I'm wondering how much we know about how they get started in the first place, um, whether there are particular conditions, circumstances, activities, things that people do. Uh, that contribute to the emergence of pandemics. We've heard about them jumping, these bugs jumping from animals. Um, but how much do we know about how that works and what are some of the things that we might be able to do to identify them and perhaps prevent them? Probably a subject for a whole other panel, but just <laughs> yeah. a, real, a real brief like a sense of that. Crack. It's a huge, It's a huge topic and it's a huge topic in part because as I mentioned, there are dozens scores of influenza strains alone circulating in birds. And the, the question is how to prioritize which of those we pay attention to, or the swine H3N2 variant that infected about over 100 people uh, in the Midwest last year. There was a consideration, should we stockpile vaccines for that as we've stockpiled for H5? And the decision was ultimately not. Uh, which I think was a good decision for a variety of reasons. We don't even know, though, how many people in China and other places are getting infected with these sorts of relatively mild uh, flu variants every year, uh, and we just we just don't observe them because they're not in the in the American Midwest. Um, so the the denominator problem, the question of how how often this is happening, is is really unknown. 
Um, so I think we're at a very early stage. I just was at a meeting last week actually on how to estimate the risk from non-human influenza viruses. And there was, uh, I would say, fair amount of pessimism that we can do that in a scientifically rigorous way. We were all surprised by the emergence of swine H1N1 from Mexico. So I think the baseline answer is we're at a very early stage. Um, Anyone want to jump in quickly? I, I believe, I think we have to live with the scientific uncertainty and prepare for the next outbreak as best as we can. So I think it's a two-pronged approach, strengthen surveillance in animals, push basic research and applied research. And on the other hand, we have also to take the measures which we have currently available and, and, and prepare. Um, preparing for an influenza pandemic will always mean that you uh, have to invest in a type of insurance. Uh, you have an insurance um, for something which can happen. It's unlikely to happen, but when it happens, it's going to be costly. So you will, will squander money away if you wish, because you will insure yourself for things which may not happen. So there will be a waste, and people need to understand, and we all need to recognize this. Uh, and I believe a, a very significant investment should be in the area of um, vaccines development. Um, that, that is going to be the preventive part. Vaccines are the most effective public health tools ever. There is no doubt about this. And every dollar invested here, in my view, can make a big difference. It doesn't mean that we should not look into animals. Uh, but the reality is, and I've been looking at this, like my colleagues, for over many decades now, predicting the outbreak is certainly uh, what, what, what the word I think the most difficult thing to predict is the future and possibly here uh, that, that, <laughs> is, that is one of, one of those. Yeah. Robert, Anita? Certainly the, the human-animal interface is where the action occurs and being able to predict what viruses in animals are well adapted to leap into people and do well is, is a science that we're just learning learning portions of it right now. And so we've tried to develop some tools to help us do that. But I think Klaus also hit on a, a, a good thing in that we need to invest in technology for better vaccines so when these events do occur that we have better improved vaccines available. Hopefully that will mean improved seasonal vaccines as well, but maybe even ultimately the holy grail of it all, which is a universal flu vaccine, which would be then pandemic response becomes a lot easier because you're not racing to develop something new. The one thing I would mention here is that we live in a global society. We can have anything coming into Boston within 24 hours, and that includes MERS, and that includes H7N9, and all those other viruses. And they can be on our doorstep. It's really, really a global issue. All right, let's throw it back to the audience. We have about three minutes. Uh, so. Hi. <laughs> I just want to uh, bring in a question from our live chat. We have a lot of people tweeting and on the live chat. All those questions will be on our site afterwards, and the panelists should feel welcome to go in and answer any more that they'd like to. But just picking up on what you were saying, Anita, uh, this is coming from the live chat. What strategies exist to mitigate the cross-continent spread of a pandemic? I uh, think it would be good if we could discuss that a little. A lot of questions coming in on that topic. If I can give an example from the UK, uh, they looked at the possibility to reduce the spread of pandemic virus into the UK. 
they looked at uh, three layers, clothing all borders, pretty much making everything tight, watertight type of, 100%, mm then -hmm. uh, 95% uh, reducing the, the uh, incoming, the, per the number of incoming people, and then down to 80%, I believe. And eventually what they um, modeled uh, was that they could delay the arrival of the virus um, from 100%, clothing everything, down to 95% by a couple of days. Uh, and then down to 90%, I believe, it's, it's only a couple of days more. So clothing down borders is not going to help. So that is one thing, I think, which we can almost um, surely rule out. Um, I think but the first thing is early detection. Early detection and communication that the others can prepare. That is possibly more important than trying to reduce the spread of a virus which has such a high, contact, uh, high transmission rate as the influenza virus, but others may have. I completely agree. I think yeah. that that idea has sort of come and gone, and and it's a global problem, and we all have to face it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Of course, that worldwide surveillance can help people to be on the lookout for ill people coming into your particular area from those high risk areas mm -hmm. of the world, and and that that's where surveillance, I think, is really helpful. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Um, mm -hmm. But we can continue the conversation, as, uh, as was said, online at uh, forumhsph.org. Uh, we've also got the Twitter feed. Um, I want to thank all the panelists, Mark Lipsich, Klaus Storr, Robert Hebner, Anita Barry. Thanks to you in the audience for coming and for watching online. Uh, thanks to the School of Public Health and PRI's The World and WGBH for organizing this. Our next forum here at the Harvard School of Public Health will be held on November 22nd at 10 in the morning. Eastern Time, the topic will be Transforming Global Health, A New Vision for the Future. And panelists uh, for that will include School of Public Health Dean Julio Frank, Global Fund Executive Director Mark Diebel, or Diebel, forgive me if I'm mispronouncing that, and former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown. I'm Peter Thompson, the Environment Editor at PRI's The World. Thanks for coming. Have a good afternoon. This has been a production of The Forum at Harvard School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of this event and post your comments at www.forumhsph.org. Thank you for sharing The Forum.